If you have your copy of Scripture, I would invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 8 this evening as we are resuming the series that Pastor Barrett and I have been working on now, working through for some time, seeing the uh, shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. And there are so many places we can go. We can preach Christ out of anything in the Old Testament. We've sought to do, I, I hope strategically, a good job of walking through different um, sorts of genres and uh, different passages uh, throughout the Old Testament. As you know, the Old Testament is divided up into three sections, the Torah, the Navium, and the Kethuvim, the Law, the Wisdom, and the Prophets. And that's the threefold division Jesus used. And so Jesus is in all of that. And among those three places in the Old Testament, I, I would venture to say that often, sadly, Christ is not seen and proclaimed out of the wisdom literature the way that he ought to be. Um, he is the very wisdom of God. And so tonight, I hope that we'll see that together as we look at Proverbs 8. If you have a copy of Scripture, I want to invite you to turn there with me. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 532. It's a lengthy passage, but I'm going to go ahead and read it uh, so that we can take in the totality of it this evening. Here, uh, Solomon, presumably writing this as he wrote most of the Proverbs, uh, now says this, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, who, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man, O simple ones, learn prudence, O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth, wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteousness, there is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who are governed justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasury. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, there I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, hear, hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, 
watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I know this was certainly true for me for many years. I, I think I read the Proverbs functionally as if they were sort of a uh, eternal code of conduct, um, something akin to the code of Hammurabi, uh, just wise ethical principles. And there is plenty of law in the Proverbs. In fact, it's been rightly noted that the Proverbs can all fall into the categories of law or gospel. It's very interesting. The Proverbs are at one and the same time an exposition of the Ten Commandments and outworking of them into the everyday life of uh, men and women. And they are also the promise of good news and the hope of a king who will endure forever. Um, But what I failed to do for so long is to understand that the Proverbs are a covenantal document. So each of the Proverbs are given in context of God's covenant relationship. And interesting, all of the wisdom literature falls during the period of the reign of David and Solomon, by and large, that that period of the Davidic covenant. Um, Most of the Proverbs are given in the context of the Davidic covenant, and many of them, most of them, are written by the son of David, Solomon, who was himself a type of Christ. Um. I have often wondered if I was asked by the Lord what I wanted, I would have asked for long life, foolishly. Solomon asked for wisdom so that he could judge between God's people coming and going because he knew that he didn't have in himself what he needed for life. But what's interesting when we come to the Proverbs is that we we come to chapters 7 and 8, and instead of the general call to understand wisdom and to embrace wisdom and understanding and, and, and having set out all of the general things about wisdom, we, we have these two personifications. We have the personification of the adulterous woman, who is a metaphor, perhaps, for evil in general. And then, by way of contrast, we have the voice of uh, the woman of wisdom, who is a personification of divine wisdom. And yet, I want us to see tonight that I think Proverbs 8, and especially uh, verses uh, 22 down to verse 31, are going to teach us that we are to understand that all of the wisdom of God breathed out in Scripture is ultimately directing us to Jesus Christ, and that this is Christ speaking. This is Christ himself speaking. And he is the one calling, and he is the one imploring people to come to him, and he is He is teaching in this the benefits of redemption. He's teaching this the benefits of wisdom. He's teaching about the work of wisdom. And he's teaching us about himself. Um, It's actually a remarkable chapter. I want us to consider tonight, and I'm not going to go through this chapter in sequential order. It's going to be out of order. I want us to consider four things. First, the personification of wisdom. Secondly, the work of wisdom. Third, the benefits of wisdom, and then finally, the call of wisdom. Well, uh, almost all the Reformed theologians in the history of our tradition of understanding Scripture have understood this to be about Christ. Listen to this. Robert Murray McShane says, this is beautiful. He says, these are the words of wisdom, and wisdom in the book of Proverbs is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
McShane says this is evident from chapter 1 where he says, I will pour my spirit out on you. But it is Christ alone who has the gift of the spirit. Again, here in chapter 8, verse 22, he says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. And in verse 30, there I was beside him as one brought up with him. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him. McShane says, these words are true of none but Jesus Christ. The word that was with God and was God, by whom all things were made. Now, it would help you at the outset to know that um, when theologians distinguish between wisdom, they often distinguish between essential wisdom and personal wisdom, personified wisdom. And here we have personified wisdom. By the way, God doesn't have wisdom. God doesn't have a whole lot of wisdom. If that sounds unorthodox to you, it's entirely orthodox. God is wisdom. He is infinite wisdom. He is his attributes. He doesn't lack one ounce of wisdom. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in wisdom. That's remarkable. And everything that he does is wise. From creation to providence to redemption, it is a display of perfect, infinite wisdom. Now, we, by way of contrast, are supremely unwise. We are foolish. That is the Bible's description. If we are dead in sins and trespasses, then we are completely foolish by nature. And so the great call of Scripture, which we'll see here shortly, is the call of the Son of God, who is wisdom himself, coming and saying, listen to me, come to me, here's who I am. At the, at the center of this chapter, from verses 22 to verse 31, This is the Son of God saying, this is who I am. I am the wisdom of God. I was with him eternally. He brought me forth eternally. This is where we get the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, that the Father eternally brings the Son forth. It doesn't make sense, I know, it's true. Augustine said, if you can explain to me how God brings forth the Son out of time, then you can explain everything. (laughs) Who can understand it? And yet it's true, the Son is equally God with God, and yet he's not the Father. And notice that he says here, he says that he was he was brought forth. Notice verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his works, the first of his acts of old, ages ago, and that would be better translated eternally, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth, before all things. This is how Paul can say of Christ, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Um, This is how John could say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was prostantheon, face to face, with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And that certainly includes himself. Notice, what, what was he doing before the world existed? He tells us. I remember as a child, asking my dad, what, what was God doing before he made the universe? And he said he was delighting in himself. That's the, the truest and most glorious answer. He was delighting in his own perfections. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, the one God in three persons, delighting in himself. Notice that, that the Son says he, he was his delight. Notice verse 30, I was daily his delight. 
This is the one of whom the Father says, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Well, even before He created anything, He was His delight. The Father loved the Son. The Son loves the Father with infinite love. No one knows the Father but the Son, the Son says. No one knows the Son but the Father and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Um, How do we know that Jesus is the wisdom of God? Well, we know that from the New Testament. Both Jesus and the apostles explicitly speak of him as the wisdom of God. So, for instance, in Luke eleven forty nine, 49, Jesus said to his disciples, therefore also the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them they will kill and persecute. The wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them they will kill and persecute. The parallel passage in Matthew 23, he says, therefore I send you prophets, which will be killed and persecuted. He's speaking of himself explicitly in Luke eleven forty nine as the wisdom of God. When he is challenged by the Pharisees as to why he was feasting with sinners like us, in contrast to John the Baptist not eating with sinners like us and, and being more mournful in his ministry, and Jesus was more joyful in his ministry, Jesus said, wisdom is justified by her children. He's speaking about himself. The fruits of his ministry justify that he is the wisdom of God. And then the well-known passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which you know, where Paul says explicitly, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 1, verse 30, he said, Of him, um, he has made Christ to be for us wisdom from God. He is the wisdom of God. Think about this. If Solomon was the wisest man who ever walked on the face of the earth, and so much so that the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to see the fruit of his wisdom, what must it have been like to be in the presence of the one who is infinite wisdom in the flesh? You know, um, there's so much in here. We're going to hear about the hatred of Christ. He hates evil. We're going to hear about the love of Christ in verse 17, the joy in verse 30 and 31, the personal promises he gives in verse 21, and, and his, his summons and telling us um, what the outcome is going to be if we don't listen or if we do listen. He, he is so full of all those personal characteristics that harmonize with infinite wisdom. Um, and yet, we have to come to terms with the fact that the Lord Jesus displays that personal wisdom in his works. And so secondly, I want us to consider here his works. We'll notice that he, we've said this already. He rejoices in God. The, the first thing we learn about the wisdom of God, the Son, is that he rejoices in the Father. He delights in him. He, he, he knows the inner heart of the infinite God. Think about that. He knows perfectly the thoughts. Jonathan Edwards said, if you wanted to know yourself perfectly, there would have to be two of you. (laughs) Well, there are three within the one God, and he knows himself perfectly. He can plumb his own depths. He knows himself comprehensively. We know just the drop in a bucket based on what he reveals to us. But think about that. The Son knows and delights in the Father's perfections just like the Father does the Son. And and notice 
that there is a a belonging together. Notice verse 22, the Lord possessed me. There is an ownership that God takes of the multiplicity of persons within the Godhead, and that then works itself out in the works of creation, providence, and redemption. Now, here, the Son will speak of the works of creation, and he'll do it in general terms. If you want more specific terms, you look at those last three chapters in the book of Job, those uh, later chapters, I believe it's 38 to 41, and you see in more specificity how the infinite God, um, all that he did in his wisdom. Where were you when I did this? Um, here there is just a general summary of creation. But I think we're meant to take away from this that when we look at the created world and we live and move in it, and it is all around us, from the grass to the hills to the trees to the valleys to the birds to you, that we are to see something of the incredible wisdom of God. Some of you are craftsmen. I am not. I hire people to do that stuff for me. Um, I I marvel my brother-in-law is a PCA pastor, happens to be an incredible woodworker, and every time we go to his house, he's built some other incredible masterpiece, and I just kind of, you know, cry myself to sleep thinking about how how non-handy I am, but then Pastor Chuck encourages me that he's not handy either. But um, when, when you look at some incredible thing that just a person has built, whatever it is, we, you see wisdom in that. We, we, we often say, wow, that's amazing. And yet, we so often don't say that when we look at the world that God has created out of nothing, by the word of his power, the perfection of the laws of nature, the perfection that the planet is spinning at, I don't know how fast, real fast. You guys probably know your homeschoolers real fast. (laughs) And it doesn't just spin off into the galaxy or into the universe or whatever. The wisdom of God, everything working perfectly and, and, that was made through the sun. He was there. He was there before any human eyes could see it. And God's wisdom was on full display as each person of the Godhead did his work in creating this world. But notice this, very interesting. Notice verse 31, after telling us that he rejoiced always over what the Father was doing, notice this. He said he was rejoicing in this habited, inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. Now, this is striking. What this is saying is that at creation, and I think even now, to a great extent, the Son delights, especially in the image bearer that he created in his own likeness for himself. And more than that, he says that he created this world for image bearers like us to have dominion over. And more than that, he ordained the fall and knew everything that was going to happen. And so when he rejoices in the inhabited world, he's also, and listen carefully, he is rejoicing in the fact that he would one day willingly enter this world in the flesh and would be nailed to a tree for filthy rebel image bearers like you and me. And he is rejoicing, not just in creation, but in redemption. Uh, Charles Bridges, 
the great commentator on the Proverbs, says that. He says, wonder of wonders that he who was from his fa- who was his father's infinite delight and infinitely delighting in him should find his delights from all eternity in the sons of men that he should long to be with us, that he would solace his heart with the prospect that he should anticipate the moment with joyous readiness that he should pass by the far nobler nature of angels to take hold of man, Hebrews 2, that he would take flesh and blood to to embrace man as one with his all-perfect self. But though he foresaw how they would despise, reject, and put him to shame, yet they were the objects of his everlasting love. Yes, Proverbs 8 is saying that. He is delighting in what he and his Father and the Spirit planned from all eternity to redeem a people in this inhabited world and to reclaim creation to himself. That's astonishing. And the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down. What is the joy? The joy is that he can bring rebels like us back to God and give us eternal life based on what he did at the cross. Isn't that awesome? What makes Jesus rejoice? His redeeming work and the benefits of having us in glory with him. That's that's amazing. Rejoicing, notice this, in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of man. Now, there is third, the benefit of wisdom. And I don't want to go through this in great detail, but if you look, especially at verses 12 through 21, there will be those repetitions that there is nothing more valuable than wisdom. There's nothing more valuable than Christ. There's nothing, there's nothing in this world, this created world, that can surpass the greatness and the glory and the, the benefits that come through Jesus Christ. If you love money, and maybe you're a lover of money, um, you will never, ever accumulate enough wealth to even come in comparison to the eternal inheritance that Jesus has secured through his death and resurrection that that he gives to us by faith alone. You realize the Bible says you don't just get eternal life, you get everything. Paul says all things are yours. The world, life, death, Paul, everything's yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? God is our inheritance. God is, the infinite God is going to, if, if you're satisfied with money, Wow, think about what it must be like to have the infinite God give himself to you and be your portion. Um, Christ here is saying, listen, it far exceeds jewels. It's far better than gold. Keeps you in the way of righteousness. Keeps you in the way of life. It gives you an inheritance. Um, By the way, I do think that what does stir our hearts to seek after the Lord Jesus and to stay close to him and to return to him and to follow him is meditating often on the benefits that are ours that he gives us. You can, you can whip yourself all day long with your failures, with what you know you should be doing, that you're not doing good enough, But none of that will motivate you to live a bountiful Christian life so much as meditating on Christ and the benefits that are ours by faith in him. That's that's rocket fuel for the Christian life. 
That's what propels us forward. That's what drew us in the first place, if you've come to Christ. Knowing that He freely offers you everything that you need and more. Um, the forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation with God. Adoption into the divine family. Makes you children of God. Sanctifies you. Purifies you. Cleanses you. Continues to forgive you. Continues to cleanse you. Brings you into a worldwide family of brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. All the benefits. And then an eternal inheritance. And then finally, I want us to consider the call. You'll notice that this chapter is bookended in verses 1 through 11 and then picking up again in 32 to 36 with the call to listen to wisdom. And this, this is the rub because we can have all the intellectual knowledge of the Bible. We can, we can, we can rattle off scripture. We can talk about Christ. Um, we can, we can know lots of theology, but if we have not responded to the call of Christ to listen to him and to come to him and to, to abide in him and in his word, then at the end of the day, we're going to be just like the outcome in the last verse. He who fails to find me injures himself and all who hate me love death. All who hate me love death. Um, you know, I remember during my years of dark rebellion, reading this proverb, and that last verse, I remember thinking, I, I, I don't know the Lord, and I that means I love death. That's what he's saying to me. Uh, if we don't know him, if we haven't listened to him, if we haven't come to him, but by way of contrast, he is pleading, and it's a universal call. This is marvelous. The call is to everyone. Isn't that amazing? He calls everybody. He says, he calls to you, O men, I call to people. Who's he calling people? You know, McShane says this, listen to this. He says, some of you may be saying, if I could see my name in the Bible, then I would believe that Christ wants me to be saved. He says, when Christ called Zacchaeus, he said, Zacchaeus, come down. He called him by name. He came down immediately. Now, if Christ would call me by name, McShane said, you might think, well, I'll run to him immediately. And he said, now I say to you, Christ does call you by your name, for he says to you, to you, O man, I call. That's everyone, young, old, to you I call. Tonight he is calling. And he is saying, I am the wisdom of God, and I am calling you to listen to me, to come to me, to hear. Notice verse 6, hear for I will speak noble things. From my lips will come what is right. From my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteousness. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are straight to him who understands and right to the one who finds knowledge. You know, everybody here listens to someone. Um, and there are a thousand voices vying for you to listen to them, saying, listen to me. On the radio, on podcast, on the news, everybody is saying, listen to me. And the eternal son is saying to you, let my voice drown out all of their voices. Listen to me. What I speak is right. What I say is straight. And if you come to understand, you will understand. 
that all that I say is straight, and all that he says is everything in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, Paul says it's the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's all the word of Christ, and it's all there constantly beckoning us to come and listen. You know, who, who, who is a picture and, and there's lots of them in the gospel records, but when I think of the ideal picture of someone who is listening to the voice of wisdom, it is Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in that Palestine living room while her sister is torn in every direction trying to do and serve, and, and she's standing over Jesus, with, don't you care? Why don't you tell my sister to help me? Ah! And we feel like that every week. And Mary's there sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled. You're cumbered, torn every direction. One thing's necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion that will not be taken away from her. Notice how he ends this. He actually says, notice verse 34, and we'll end here. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Well, what, what, what is... What are the gates and the doors? Well, certainly it's Scripture, but it's the church. It's sitting under the ministry of the Word. Whenever we come and we sit under the preaching of the Word, as Pastor Cosby noted today, that's the main thing. And when we come and gather and we listen and we receive and we are eager to be realigned because our sinful hearts are always doing this and wanting to listen to the the, the woman of folly in chapter 7 or whatever it is, the voice of Christ, the wisdom of God is calling us back. And, and he says, look, blessed is the one who listens to me. For those years of rebellion in which I was in so much darkness, I almost never went to church. And uh, a month before I was converted, I had met the guy who is my best friend now, and he had been converted out of a past like mine, a lot of drugs, a lot of darkness. And um, he, he took me to church. Uh, for the first time in a long time in Greenville, South Carolina. And I sat in the pew and the music director got up to do a little intro thing before the call to worship. And I was like, I got to get out of here. And I just jetted. I left as quick as I could because I knew if I sat there, I was sitting in the gates of wisdom and I was going to hear things my sinful heart didn't want to hear. And now, hopefully by God's grace, I hope this is true for you, you can't wait to sit under the ministry of the word. You may be tired, you may need four cups of coffee, but you can't wait to get fed and to be in God's word. On your worst week, it's water to the soul. Notice he says, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. The second you come to Jesus Christ, you get an infinite source of wisdom and understanding, right? Paul says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Matthew Henry says, they're not hidden from us, they're hidden for us in Christ. I want to say just a couple things as we walk out of this. First, I want to ask you if you have ever seen the Lord Jesus as the infinite and incarnate eternal wisdom of God. There's no philosophy. 
outside of him that is true wisdom, Paul can say, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you with philosophy or empty deceit according to the elemental principles of the world and not according to Christ. That means everything we think, everything we process, we need to be processing through the Scriptures in light of the eternal wisdom of God. And then I would ask if you've come to Him. You know, we come to Christ when we see Him hanging on the cross and we understand that all of the divine attributes meet up on the cross. The wrath, truth, justice, mercy, grace, it all meets on the cross where the Son puts Himself in our place. And Paul says that, that, is the power and the wisdom of God. And that's where we run to for wisdom. And so I would ask you tonight, if you've ever gone to the one who is the very wisdom of God, who hung on the cross to be the wisdom of God for you. And then I would encourage you to ask if you're meditating often on the benefits of Christ. Um, How often do you meditate on all that is yours in him? And, and that sometimes takes work. It's not, it doesn't often just happen by osmosis. We have, to, we have to be meditating, don't we, on what the Bible says. And we have to be in the Word. And so then I'd ask you finally, you know, when you, when you consider your greatest need, do you end up saying, you know, my greatest need is to be under the ministry of the Word, sitting at the gates, waiting by the doors, waiting. I believe that it is for you. I want to encourage you to that end tonight to be abiding in the one who is the very wisdom of God for us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are hard things. These are necessary things. We thank you for the voice of the Son of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you call us tonight as you call all men to hear your voice and to come to you in faith and repentance. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are often foolish, that we are often wayward, that we often do things we don't want to do and fail to do the things we want to do. And so we cry out to you tonight, to the God who is wisdom and to the one who has embodied wisdom in the flesh. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make us a wise and understanding people. We pray, O God, that each person in this room would come to you for the very wisdom that we often lack, and that you would show us the greatness of the benefits of having you and abiding in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.